This is the Beaver Tales Podcast with Josh Ward, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Welcome once again, everybody. I'm Josh Warden on the Beaver Tales podcast, where I chat with former Oregon State student athletes and coaches to learn about what they did at Oregon State, what they learned while playing and competing, and what they transitioned into after their athletic careers. I'm hoping to be involved in Oregon State sports a long time as a broadcaster for OSU. My goal is to be the voice of the Beavers one day, and I hope you enjoy this Oregon State-related podcast. Today, I'm joined not only by a former Oregon State student-athlete, but also a current coach, which is a big theme of what we discuss on this episode. It's Casey Bunn-Wilson joining me for episode 38 of the Beaver Tales podcast. Casey Bunn-Wilson is now the head coach at Linfield. Uh, You're probably familiar with the school in McMinnville, D3 program right here in Oregon. She's a native of Staten and played at Oregon State from 2003 to 2007. I've had a couple other women's basketball guests on this podcast, but they were both a little more recent. Alyssa Martin played about 2010 to 2014. Jamie Wisner overlapped and was a little more recent. So it was fun to chat with Casey. I just finished this conversation and some really interesting topics on transitioning into coaching, learning the sport of basketball all over again to a certain degree, or at least how to teach it to others and what she realized, oh, that's what it's like to teach it to someone. And I've only been the player on the other side of the conversation, Uh, but she did play overseas as well, not just at Oregon State, where she was a tremendous player leading the conference in scoring her senior year. She averaged 20 points a game in the Pac-10 that year leading all scorers from the league. She went on to play in five countries overseas, Portugal, Spain, Ireland, Greece, and Australia. And she's coached at a few different places since then, Tualatin High School, Lake Oswego High School. She started her own uh, youth program called the the Junior Energy or the Portland Energy. It's based up in Portland. She's not with them anymore once she took the the Linfield job. It was too much to balance the two, but she spent about five years – coaching young girls ages, uh, well, grades 4 through 12, giving them kind of advanced coaching and a broader opportunity to play for some travel teams. And so uh, she's really passionate about coaching and developing people both on and off the court. She now lives in McMinnville with her husband, Mitch, and her son, Rylan. You'll actually hear me make a fool of myself. For some reason, I thought I'd read that her son was 7 years old. I don't know where I got that idea. And I mentioned some question at the end, thinking he was older than he really was. Turns out he's just two years old. I don't know why I thought he was older than two, but uh, you'll hear me sound pretty silly at the end. And you know what? I'm going to leave it in because at the end of the day, I can make fun of myself and laugh at myself for an innocuous mistake. But we have a fun conversation both about that and, and more broadly talking about her playing career and coaching as well. So here is former Oregon State women's basketball player and the mother of a two-year-old Casey Bun Wilson. Casey, thanks for joining me from McMinnville on the Beaver Tales podcast. Be fun to chat with you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So you just finished your fifth season at Linfield. Tell me about what this season looked like and what has probably been an atypical off season so far. Yeah, this season was really good. Um, we started off really strong. I brought in nine new players this season before I I was only playing with eight and we made it to our conference tournament, which only allows four teams. Um, But we ran with eight players due to some injuries. Um, So we had a great season. So I brought in this year, nine new players. So it was definitely an adjustment 
Um, I felt like the returners did an incredible job of bringing in the newcomers. We had a few transfers and six freshmen. So um, they did a great job of just getting them up to speed and really welcoming them with open arms and just bringing them into the program and catching them up quickly. When you bring in that many student athletes to your program, how, how have you kind of handled recruiting your routine and methodology, especially compared to if you, you know, compare how you were recruited and what that was like in general and for you particular, I mean, it's a whole different ballgame, at least to a certain degree with technology, I suppose. But how do you compare how you were recruited versus how you recruit others? Yeah, great question. I think in D3, it's, it's really difficult because we can't give athletic scholarships. And so I have to go after those kids that are high academic. So they're not paying an arm and a leg for school, right? Mm -hmm. Like I can't justify, you know, them graduating with so much debt. It's like, let me go after the right kid so that it, you know, it obviously brings the cost down. But I think in terms of the way I recruit is a lot like the way I was recruited, you know, a lot of a lot of phone calls, a lot of text messages. Um, I think at this level, we cast a bigger net because we don't have scholarships. Uh, you know, it's not like we have to fill 15. We can take on more. And um, and I think there's a little bit of, you know, players that come to school and, you know, coach, like education is really important to me. I'm going to focus on that. And I don't have a scholarship over their head. So I'm like, that's fine. And, you know, so there's a little bit more turnover maybe. We've been really lucky. Um, to graduate everybody in our program, 100% graduation rate in our program since I've been here, which is great. And so whether they decide to keep playing or not, they're still graduating, which is obviously the most important thing. Um, but in terms of that, it's just I, I feel like I'm learning more and more every year. And sometimes I don't even know what I'm doing or feel like I don't even know what I'm doing. But um, it's just always I'm just always learning new things. And, you know, since this the, all the quarantine and lockdown stuff, it's been awesome actually to use Zoom so much because usually we have players and their families on campus and they're traveling and we have to set that up. But now it's just like, Hey, let's get on zoom and I can meet everybody and it doesn't cost anything. So really trying to use that to our advantage and using technology as a whole in our, to our advantage. I like what you said about, you know, sometimes I don't really know what I'm doing. And I think that's a theme. This applies not just to, to coaching. Anybody could say this. If it always feels like everyone else has got it figured out and I'm the only one who doesn't. And then someone else says that. And then we're like, wait, you don't have it all figured out? Because I don't. And then we all realize we're all, we're all on the same level. We just pretend like we aren't. Uh, so how, how have you realized that? Where it may feel like you don't have it figured out, but at the same time, you kind of realize maybe, you know, everyone does. What, what are some areas where you've seen that? Well, I think just, you know, the game's always evolving. There's always new things. Students are so different and just learning each player and what makes them tick. And, you know, every year I feel like, okay, we got it down. And then the next year brings new challenges. And then you're like, okay, let's tackle this. And so I think it just, there's so much change all the time, which is awesome. And it keeps me on my toes and always learning. But, um, you know, sometimes you, you get a situation and you're like, gosh, how do we handle this? This is what we're going to do. And then you hope that you did it right or you know you hope you did it the right way so i think in that sense it's just like okay am i doing this right you know as long as we're player centered and um you know we have their interests in mind at all times i think we're doing the right thing i think we're on the right track but it just you know so many personalities and team sports are so dynamic that it, i just feel like i'm always learning and changing and growing which is awesome yeah one of the interesting parts of recruiting high academic players what you mentioned is that sure it can be difficult in a certain standard to to reach and so that may limit the pool of players but 
of the players you do get, if they're high academic, you'd maybe theoretically think, well, they're going to be smart basketball players. They'll understand the fundamentals. They'll follow closely. They'll, they'll, you know, have high IQ in basketball. And that may be true a lot of the times, but how, how have you learned does high academics always translate to high IQ, high IQ basketball? Or do you sometimes get, man, you have a great GPA, but you need to pick it up on the basketball court. You know, how much does that translate? Or sometimes maybe it doesn't. Well, it's interesting because like when I was in college, we had half our team in study hall, some on academic probation, you know, those kind of things. And um, obviously different levels, different demands. But here I haven't had any of that. I'm like, we graduated this, year, this semester with a three, not graduated. We ended this semester with a three, six. And so uh, academically, I don't have to worry really about them. And, you know, everyone's really self-motivated and on task with their academics and then when it comes to basketball it's almost like they're perfectionists in the classroom and you know basketball is a game of mistakes and it's okay just don't keep making the same ones so it's almost like they're um they want to be perfectionists on the court and they want to get everything right I'm like that's not going to happen we're going to make mistakes all the time so it's almost like it's okay don't worry about it let's move on how are we going to keep moving forward and so that's been the, a challenge and definitely a difference from you know, when I was playing, it was kind of like, okay, coach told us to do this. This is what we're going to do. And now it's more, and maybe it's generational, but um, now it's more the why. And I really make sure that when I'm coaching, I try to explain the why. And so then it clicks a little bit better. Um, whereas when I played, I was like, this is what coach said, I'm going to do it. So <laughs> it's a little bit different. And I've learned to, you know, and, and they ask questions, not to challenge, but just to understand better. And that's something that I learned in my first couple of years. And I'm like, they're not being sassy. They're not trying to challenge me. They're just wondering so it makes sense so that they can go out and execute it. And so that was probably the biggest, uh, I don't know, lesson I learned my first couple of years. Um, but yes, they're so smart. It's great. I mean, they're going to be doctors and biologists and yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. The other part of, of coaching, and it kind of goes along with teaching, is that I can testify this is true and, and anyone who becomes you know, any sort of teacher, whether it's out of profession or not, is that in order to understand a concept best is to teach it, right? You're going to learn it a thousand times better than just sitting in a classroom. So now that you've been in the game coaching, you know, some at the high school level now, five years at, at Linfield, what have you learned either about the game of basketball in particular, or maybe broader, you know, coaching as a concept where maybe you kind of understood it as a player, but now to teach it and be the one to lead others to do it, you now much more comprehensively understand it. Right. Yeah. I often find myself, find myself saying the same things to my players that coaches said to me. <laughs> I'm like, Oh gosh, now I know why they're saying these things. <laughs> You know, yeah, like you said, when you're in the moment, you don't really get the big picture of all of it. And at the end of the day, your coaches want you to be successful. They want the team to be successful. And that's really hard when you're getting criticized all the time or corrected. Um, and, you know, some players almost feed off it. Like, we're well, not saying anything. What am I doing wrong? And I'm like, nothing. You're doing great. Like, just keep going. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting just the difference, you know, now to then. Yeah, that's part of it. And, and I mean, you're still pretty early in the coaching game and you've only been in it for a few years. So if you stay in this forever, you'll have plenty of, of, of years ahead of you at Linfield or wherever. And so 
who are some of the coaches you learn from either ones you're still in touch with and learn from today or the coaches you had when you were a player where you remember the impact they had, even if you don't stay in touch with them now, some of the things you learn from who comes to mind as a coach that impacted you to help you become now a coach on the other end? Yeah, that's a great question. I've been really fortunate to play for a lot of really great coaches. Um, you know, some I agree with their philosophy and some I didn't. And I take away what I want and what I don't want from that when I'm coaching. And um, back to the comprehension, it's like, I wish I knew now or I wish I knew then what I know now as a player. So I'm like, gosh, I really wish I would have tapped into all of this when I was playing. And I just, I, I don't know if you're just in the moment and you don't grasp it, or I always say you're in the college bubble and you just don't see the bigger picture. Um, but it's always after you graduate, you're like, oh, wow, I wish I would have known that then. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a lot of my assistant coaches from Oregon State I'm in contact with, I feel very fortunate to have a lot of mentors that are still coaching um, that are willing to you know just pick up the phone or answer when i call and answer any questions that i have um naming specifically uh dosha woods i'm in really good contact with heath alexander who's now at cincinnati um judy spolstra she's coaching at the high school level i believe now but still in contact with her so uh yeah really fortunate i'm still in contact contact with a few coaches i've had overseas you know, so just emailing and being able to get on Facebook or whatever and stay in contact with them has been really cool. And just knowing that I have those resources and that I need to tap into them more, you know, you kind of like, well, I don't want to bother them or I don't want to inconvenience. But every time I do, they're like, I'm so happy you reached out, call me anytime, you know, just like you would hope that anybody would be, but it's just always that. That's something that I've learned as a coach is I need to use my resources more than I do. Mm. Yeah, going overseas, I'm sure, was an experience that taught you a lot, and, and you stuck with them. I mean, five different countries, Spain, Australia, Ireland, Portugal, Greece. Um, I'm guessing there may have been a lot of difficult things. I know that playing professional basketball overseas in any league, male or female, there's there's difficult parts of it, whether it's learning the culture, the language, whatever it may be, but there must have been enough good stuff to go to five different countries and keep trying it. So what were some of the the fun parts and the difficult parts of playing pro basketball overseas? Gosh, the, the fun part was being able to travel the world and getting paid for it, by far the best experience. Um, the challenging parts was the language barrier, you know, um, learning the culture while you're there. And just, it's not like you had a translator walking around with you, you know, you kind of had to learn from your teammates. And in uh, Greece and Spain was probably the hardest in terms of language barrier just because they're so different and not a lot of people that I was around spoke English and so I was a lot of learning by watching and they probably thought I was an idiot half the time like you call a 30 second timeout coach runs up a play and says what to do and then you you hope you got it all on the, the whiteboard otherwise you probably missed a few details um, in Spain it was really nice to have a translator but 30 second timeout, your coach tells you everything. And then the translator's trying to tell you in those 10 seconds. So I'm sure a lot got, you know, mixed up in translation, but you try your best. And that's where I really learned, um, like I said, to learn through others' examples and like, okay, let me go in the back of the line. I'm going to watch first so then I can get the hang of it. Um, but it's, it's pretty cutthroat. Like you're the, you're the import you know, you're the American expected to go in there and really make a huge impact. And so if you don't, they're like, 
on to the next. <laughs> so yeah. it taught me, you know, how to be tough and thick skinned and um, obviously being in a country by yourself where you don't know anybody is, it teaches you a lot. You grow up really fast. Yeah. Kind of similar topic, but of your time at Oregon state, because um, when you were playing at OSU, uh, you also grew a lot as a player. I mean, you go from averaging seven points a game as a junior to 20 points a game as a senior and leading the, the conference and scoring the Pac-10 at the time. So at, at that point, when you're at OSU and, and preparing yourself to a certain degree to, to go on to what would be a professional career, how were you growing both as an athlete and beyond the court? I mean, what was going on in those years where you were developing as, you know, as a basketball player and, and whatever you're doing academically and, and so forth? How were you developing as a person then? Mm -hmm. I think I developed a lot in several different ways. Each year is different. You know, I came in freshman year and got quite a bit of playing time, ended up starting halfway through. And then um, sophomore year broke my foot. So I had a redshirt a year. And, you know, coming back as a junior, I was in a completely different role. I had some incredible seniors ahead of me um, that were in those scoring roles. And so my role was literally rebound and box out and set the best screen I could. And so something that I learned very quickly was like, whatever you need, I'm going to do because that's going to put me on the court. And I think players that have that mindset are going to be a lot more successful than having their own agenda. You know, it's like you can have your own agenda, but if the coach doesn't agree, you're not going to play. So um, just learning. Each, each year had having different roles and being okay with that. And then, you know, senior year, that was kind of more my role was scoring. And thankfully I had teammates that got me the ball and that were setting great screens and, you know, putting me in that position. And then it was just to, up to me to kind of close the deal at the time. But I learned a ton of being a role player and what's important outside of scoring and how you can impact the game in other ways than just scoring, which a lot of players I think focus on. Um, you know, one thing in, on my team that we focus on is one of the scores, we all score. One of us gets an assist, we all going to get an assist because we all benefit from it. It doesn't matter who scores, when, as long as we're doing it and working together, it's really hard, as you know, to uh, guard a whole team. It's really easy to defend a couple different players, right? You can shut down a couple players. But if you're playing on a team that's selfless and team first mentality, it doesn't matter who scores, you all win. And so I think... Overall, looking back at Oregon State, that's the biggest lesson that I learned. It's, it's so interesting to see when players take a huge jump, especially in scoring, sometimes because they develop so much as a scorer and they develop a jump shot and become much better on or off the dribble. And sometimes it's just, hey, players graduated. They always had that ability. They just have a higher usage rate. They're taking more shots. Uh, I remember seeing a video recently, some off season, and it's like Patrick Beverly playing in an off season game. And he's not the biggest scorer in the NBA averages. Like, I mean, I don't know how many points, but it's not very many, but he's just, you know, jacking up threes, knocking shots down, scoring on everybody because he was the best player on the team. And, you know, any, not everybody, but a lot of players could be way bigger of scores if they had that role. It's just, there are other players on the team who are the score. So I don't know how much you see that of your own players at Linfield. If you know, wow, this girl could be a 20 point a game score if she was shooting the ball, you know, 40% of our possessions. But have you kind of seen that a lot over the years? 
Yeah. And it's, you know, I think it's the development within the player too. Like, wow, this freshman is really good. Once she gets the confidence to do this, this, and this, then she's going to be outstanding. But at some, you know, when you're younger, you don't know what you don't know. Right. And so it's like, wow, okay, all this stuff, all these outside things don't matter. This is what's asked of me. This is what I can do. This is the confidence that I have in it. And I think what I've seen from like freshmen to seniors, especially, they just gain a confidence that, you know, you don't have without that experience. So I think, you know, it varies, right? Like some freshmen come in and lights out and they're confident and they're one of your top leading scorers and that's how it is. But I think generally speaking, it's kind of a gradual maturity thing too. A quick interruption of this interview to let you know about a future project that I think you'll like if you're listening to this podcast. You may have noticed that I've gotten several baseball players from the 2018 Beaver Baseball Squad on this podcast. I've also gotten several interviews that I've not even released on this podcast that'll be exclusively for a future project. It'll be a multi-part series documenting that 2018 championship squad. This audio documentary will give you a behind-the-scenes look, including stories you may not have heard and recollections firsthand from some key moments right there in Omaha. And I got two strikes on me. I'm nervous. I catch a glimpse at Coach Casey in the dugout. He's screaming at me. He's telling me to stay through the baseball, stay through the baseball. I took a really, really deep breath, and I was able to get it down to one thought. And it was always, I'm a beast. I'm a beast. I would connect to my breath. I would find my focal point, And I'd said, I'm a beast. Stay through this pitch. And he threw the same exact pitch, and I caught full barrel on it. You'll hear stories like those and how they fit together through the 2018 postseason on this multi-part series documenting that 2018 Beaver baseball team. There will also be some documentaries narrating moments from other Beaver sports to come afterwards, but stay tuned for updates right here on the Beaver Tales podcast on a release date and other info. All right, back to the interview. When you were at Oregon State, and we talked about your athletic career, how about academically? You graduated in public health promotion and education. I think the answer is at least somewhat yes, but did you have a different career path in mind at that point? At that point, I wasn't sure. I just knew I liked studying the human body and being healthy. And, you know, I took a lot of exercise science classes and those things. And so I knew I wanted to do something with people and sports. And it's probably my junior year. In college, I realized I wanted to coach at some level. Uh, I didn't know where I'd end up or what I what I really wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to coach and continue to be in athletics in some way. And so, um, I don't know. I felt like health promotion and education was a avenue to do that. But I learned, you know, I learned a lot with that. And I think I wanted to go into the health field at some point. But I'm promoting health right now, right? Healthy living, being in athletics, so. That's how I justify it, at least. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's an open-ended thing that, that uh, you're definitely still fulfilling, for sure. Um, kind of a couple last topics here is uh, when you were growing up, I kind of want to touch on um, kind of the opportunities and chances you had to play basketball um, because by the time you finished high school, let's say you went to state in high school and you were, you, know, you set the record for points, rebounds, assists, steals, all at state in high school. Um, but growing up even into high school or before that, did you feel in your area or as you grew up and saw all the opportunities around Oregon in terms of the teams available, the coaching, the travel squad opportunities, what did you see of here are what you know, young girls could do in the sport of basketball if they're passionate or a lack of opportunities? I mean, what did you see? Mm -hmm. Well, I felt very fortunate. At first, I grew up with three older brothers. 
you know, that pushed me and all played sports. And my dad played basketball at Boise State. And so I felt like basketball was just in my future, no matter what. But yeah, growing up in Staten, obviously smaller town. When I was growing up in AAU and all that stuff, there was maybe one or two AAU clubs in the state. You know, now I feel like there's several. So um, we had to travel a lot. You know, I went up to Portland two or three times a week to practice uh, just to get on those travel teams. Like one year I was on a travel team in Eugene that, you know, traveled all across the country, of course. But in Staten, I felt like we had a great youth program. You know, uh, Staten High School was very supportive of their athletic programs. And so I was able to do three sports while still playing basketball year round, knowing that basketball was my main sport, but I felt like it was, was important to continue to play as many sports as possible, which now I feel like is a little bit less common. Um, although when I was in, when I was doing my youth program, it was like, Oh coach, we have a soccer conflict. If I don't make practice, I might get cut. I might go to soccer, then it's okay. You know? So I feel like having a variety as as long as you can is really important for just the overall development of a student athlete or just an athlete in general to getting that cross training or different coaching and just getting those different experiences is really important. Um, and I felt like I had those at Staten. And, you know, a lot of people encouraged me to transfer to a bigger school. You know, you're not going to get seen in Staten. You know, I heard a ton of things, but I felt like if I was going to make it, I was going to make it from a community that supported me. Uh, for as long as they did and growing up and everything. And it was important for me to stay close to home and just, um, you know, I know transfer transferring is a lot more common now back then it wasn't. And so I was like, if I'm going to get seen, I'll get seen here. If not, then I won't. But. Right. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard the argument, you know, if you want to be good at one sport, don't just specialize in that sport, at least not super early. And I've heard that so many times, it almost seems crazy that people would disagree with it. I mean, I get it. At a certain point, you do have to, to specialize, but especially at a young age, it seems very high evidence that no, it's definitely valuable to play three, four, you know, four sports in high school as you did, and you did make it out of state in high school. Um, so I also want to just ask about the, the junior energy youth basketball program, which you, you co-founded with a director and obviously you're not doing it now, but what, what kind of did you see as the opportunity for that to fit in where there's only a couple AAU programs when you were playing and then you, you're making that whole program to help, you know, girls uh, grades four through 12. And so how did that fit in and, and uh, provide opportunities for girls to play basketball? Yeah. I, as soon as I got back from playing overseas, um, I wanted to get into coaching right away. And at the time we had a semi-pro team. Um, it didn't last very long, but it was fun to do after I was playing. And we just traveled and played local college teams or other kind of put together teams. Um, and then I, the coach at the time, uh, Naewon Thompson, I was like, hey, let's start a youth program. Um, I had worked with one a little bit before that had kind of fallen through. And so I wanted to start my own and just giving girls opportunity that wasn't super expensive. We were pretty local. We didn't travel across the country, but just creating a really positive environment for them to be successful um, and to practice fundamentals and, you know, the skill set that they're, they're going to need to carry them through high school and college. Um, how to be a good teammate. What does, you know, a good leader look like? And we really focused on fundamentals and skills were we the best around probably not but um we had five or six teams and we developed players and their confidence and just my biggest goal was to create a positive atmosphere where they felt comfortable um 
you know, and were able to thrive in that environment. And, you know, we had, coincidentally, we had a lot of players leave the program that were like, wow, my child gained so much confidence in these, these years. Um, and so I, I took a lot of pride in that. And like I said, we didn't win every game, but uh, just to see their development over the course of two or three years that they were in the program meant the world and, you know, preparing them to go into high school or, and once I got, I was doing that, then I got the head job at Tualatin. And so it was a really cool, almost feeder program for a lot of my youth Tualatin kids. Um, and we just did spring and fall. We didn't mess with the winter because that was their, you know, uh, middle school and high school teams. But um, it was cool to see. So then I could have a hand on, you know, this fifth and sixth and seventh graders coming in at Tualatin. So it was just a great uh, situation. And I was sad to leave it, you know, but once I moved to McMinnville and got this job at Linfield, it, it wasn't possible to do it anymore. Yeah. Uh, to kind of wrap it all up of all the things we've touched on from your passion and coaching to what you learned as a player to traveling overseas. Um, the, one of the things, the themes I love to hear from, from the athletes that I talk with is, you know, how they were prepared for the next level and how they transition out of athletics. Um, you know, especially if their identity and their feeling of self-worth was in their playing career and then they stopped playing and then they have to figure okay who am I now what, what am I doing both just with my time and and just who I am as a person so when you finished playing overseas and it seemed like you kind of had some things in order you had an idea for the youth program the semi-pro thing um, was there ever a moment where you were like oh shoot I gotta figure something out and like I don't know what I'm doing or did you have a clear picture what, or what's something maybe that you learned about who you are like just at the very rudimentary base level when playing basketball is no longer your day-to-day -day thing yeah I mean you hear it all the time sports is an incredible vehicle to teach life lessons, right? And so I feel like um, I learned to be tough. I learned to fight through um, a lot of adversity, you know, through sports. Um, things don't always go your way and you just kind of have to figure it out and find a way. And so that's the biggest thing I learned. Once I came back from playing overseas, I kind of was like, well, what am I gonna do now? And I didn't have any job experience because I'd played all through high school and college. I didn't have a job and all that kind of stuff. So I, I did, find myself a little bit stuck for about a year or two, had to get some um, just kind of random jobs. At one point, I think I had four jobs and just trying to get as much experience on my resume as possible. Um, you know, it's hard to get into college coaching. And, um, and so I didn't know, I didn't know what the future would hold, but I knew that I had to be resilient and that whatever was going to come my way was going to happen on its own time and just be patient and, um, be successful at whatever I was doing at the time. And I think that's just the mindset I developed through sports is there's so much in your control and there's so much out of your control. So to worry about the stuff in your control and then the rest will figure itself out. And when you say getting, you know, four jobs, we're probably talking well, like customer service and like Nordstrom or something like that, maybe. Um, yes, exactly. So I worked at Nordstrom for a while, which was a great experience. I mean, if anyone has the opportunity to work in customer service, you learn a lot about yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't for me, but it was a great experience. Um, I worked the front desk at a sports uh, club where actually it's where I met my husband, Mitch. Um, and I was doing the Portland energy stuff. And then I was working at Tualatin too. 
And so, yeah, I was trying to juggle as much as I could, trying to get as much experience as I could um, until another door opened. And I was actually really happy at Tualatin. I was the school to career coordinator. So I was working full time there while coaching. And then this opportunity at Linfield came up and kind of out of nowhere. So I just, I just really had to put my faith into timing and whatever happens, happens, just continue to do a good job where I was at. Yeah. Actually, this will be the last thing since we haven't talked about family at all. You got a son, Rylan, right? And your husband, Mitch. How are you spending the time? Do you play basketball? Does your son try to post you up and shoot over you? Or what, what's been the, some of the fun family activities lately? Oh, well, he just turned two. So not oh, quite. I thought he was so seven he, for some reason. Never mind. No, no he just turned two. Um, but he's really into golf. So my husband, Mitch, is the director of golf at Linfield. And he's, he does some strength and conditioning and then he works at the private course, Michael Book in town. Um, and so my son is just really into golf right now, which is great because he can hit the ball with his little plastic club and it's awesome. Um, but he keeps me on my toes and, uh, you know, we've just really been enjoying family time and kind of having things slow down a little bit, although the golf course never shut down. Wow. So my husband's been very busy, but um, yeah, just really appreciating the time that we have when we wouldn't normally have it. We're trying to see the silver lining and the positive in all this and just, um, you know, trying to make the best of it. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks so much for, for talking and chatting about a lot of fun memories. It's cool to hear the life lessons you've learned and um, everything you got going. So best of luck whenever Linfield is able to, to get back into a normal routine and for next season. So thanks so much for talking with me, Casey. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Beaver Tales podcast. If you listen this far, that probably means you liked hearing from Casey Ben Wilson. I really like talking with coaches at Oregon State and the student athletes. The coaches in particular are interesting because, you know, they're on the other side of it. They're trying to be mentors and leaders to people and teach both on and off the athletic field or the court. And so people like Pat Casey or Rushy Wortham or Pat Bailey or whatever coaches I may get on are so fun to talk to. And Casey Bun Wilson is great because she was both a player and now a coach. So she fulfills both sides of talking about her athletic career, what it was like to play for Oregon State, and then uh, to be a coach as well. Hey, I don't ask for much if you listen to this podcast, not really any advertisements or anything along those lines, but if you do have any capability to help out some of the charities I mentioned on this podcast just to give some exposure to nonprofits, the one I'm featuring today is Children's Garden. They're a home in the Philippines led by just two people I know pretty well. Uh, they give a home to kids living on the street right there in the Philippines, give them education and a home to stay in until they oftentimes graduate high school and go to college. It's a great place uh, and I would highly recommend checking them out and, and even donating as well. Their website is in the description, but it's also childrensgarden.ph. Thanks so much for tuning into the Beaver Tales podcast. Got some gymnastics guests coming up on the podcast. You'll see who those are uh, coming up in the next week or two and some other sports represented as well. As always, I'm Josh Warden, your host on the Beaver Tales podcast. Until next time, good night and go Beavs.